everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, author of The Cryptopians. I started covering crypto eight years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the May 30th, 2023 episode of Unchained. Buy, trade, and spend crypto on the Crypto.com app. New users can enjoy zero credit card fees on crypto purchases in the first seven days. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. We're here with Aaron Kaplan, co-CEO and co-founder of Proethium, and Rosario Ingarjola, founder and CEO of Bosonic, to discuss the recent developments in FINRA-approved broker-dealers in the crypto space. Welcome, Aaron and Rosario. Hey, Laura. Nice. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having me, Laura. So as far as I understand, and this is an area I'm not super familiar with, so you're going to have to help me out. Both of you have been approved by FINRA to operate as broker-dealers for digital asset securities. And there might be some technical differences between your offerings, which we can dive into later, But why don't we have each of you begin by describing what it is that your company does? And we'll start with you, Rosario. What does Bosonic do? Yeah, well, Bosonic, um, as the the main company, independent of the broker-dealer ATS uh, subsidiary, is basically in the business of eliminating counterparty credit and settlement risk. So we've built a what is effectively a multi-custodial blockchain network that allows clients that are holding assets at custodians to be able to transact risklessly uh, with an atomic swap at the custodial level. And uh, we're currently live and in production doing that with digital assets that are not securities. And we uh, expect to be doing it shortly underneath our new broker-dealer ATS with digital assets that are securities. And Aaron, what about Prometheum? Prometheum as a parent is building the technology that is used by its subsidiaries, Prometheum ATS and Prometheum Capital. Prometheum ATS was one of the first, if not the first, ATS approved to publicly trade digital asset securities, and Prometheum Capital was just recently approved as the first special purpose broker-dealer. The idea is to create a thriving public market, which requires both having a trading and custodial infrastructure, uh, and the idea is that the assets that are traded on the ATS will clear and settle at the custodian at the special purpose broker-dealer. Okay, great. Yeah, we'll dive into more details on all of that. But I also wanted to ask you about your backgrounds. So Rosario, how did you even come to work in the crypto space? Uh, I've actually been in the crypto space since about mid 2015. So my background has basically been building institutional electronic trading platform companies as a founder for pretty much my whole career. So I had two companies prior to Basonic. The first one that I started with a computer science professor at University of California where we took a number of years of research we did applying machine learning and AI to algorithmic trading and basically spun all that out of the university and built a large-scale multi-asset algo trading platform for that we licensed to guys like BNY Mellon and Millennium Partners and folks like that. And then the last company was in the FX space, which is very close to sort of the crypto space in a lot of different ways. We built the whole front-to-back stack that guys like Cantor Fitzgerald and EDF Man and folks like that used to run their electronic FX trading businesses. And the genesis of Basonic was um, basically 
coming into the space and look, realizing that it looks very much like the FX space in terms of being in big OTC fragmented market and wanting to basically do the same thing, aggregate all the global liquidity, produce an institutional offering, and then basically figured out you couldn't do it because there was no way to clear and settle the transactions across all of the exchanges, market makers, and counterparties. And so that was the genesis of Basonic. It was really born out of sort of necessity uh, to solve that problem. And Aaron, what about you? I initially got into the space in 2013. Uh, and it was always our belief that at our law, my law firm at the time, uh, the law firm I was working at, that uh, the federal securities laws were the best way to regulate digital assets or at the time, Bitcoin. Uh, we initially wrote a no action letter to the SEC in April 2014, uh, asking them to not take action against us should we trade Bitcoin through an ATS in a brokerage account. Uh, and at the, at the time, we got bedbugged, but I uh, continued to operate in the space. And myself and our CTO were involved in one of the first legal token frameworks coming out of an academic conference out of Harvard and MIT uh, in 2015. And then when the Dow report came out in July 2017, it was the confirmation of our belief, the belief that the federal securities laws applied and that intermediaries in the space had to be regulated under the federal securities laws. Uh, so shortly thereafter, we started Prometheum with the intention of creating that compliant ecosystem for trading and custody of digital assets under the securities laws. Oh, wow. You started that back in 2017? Uh, yeah, I believe September 2017. The, the Dow report comes out in July 2017, and it's the first time that the SEC basically says that digital assets or at the time crypto or you know the, the general category implicated the federal securities laws and those operating in the space, meaning the financial intermediaries, uh, would likely fall under the securities laws. So cutting through the lines, they were basically saying the federal securities laws applied. And that's the first time that the industry gets the indication of that fact. And anyone who argues contrary to that fact has to start back since then and then follow the SEC's actions, the enforcement actions, the releases uh, to see that there's been a clear linear path of regulation that's been in course or, you know, being uh, applied since that time forward. Yeah. And I guess like the other thing, though, that I thought was um, it seems like it's taken almost six years to uh, get this approval then. Is that the conclusion or or no? So we were initially approved as an ATS for digital assets in 2021. Uh, and then we just recently were approved, uh, Promethean Capital was recently approved as a special purpose broker dealer, uh, which is super important because it's the first federally licensed custodian uh, to custody digital assets under the securities laws. And the reason that's relevant is because there's a proposed change to the custody rule. And what that, with that proposed change, crypto assets held by investment advisors, basically any institution that's held in, holding their clients' assets, have to custody their crypto at a qualified custodian. Now, what's a qualified custodian? Uh, well, the list is enumerated. It's a bank, a broker dealer, meaning apes, and in this case, a special purpose broker dealer, because that's the only broker dealer that could custody digital assets under the federal securities laws. And beyond the other two categories, once there's a, a futures category and then there's a foreign entity category, but those are the two main categories. And the reason that's also relevant is because what does that mean for the state license entities? Uh, I believe that the federal licensure regime is being is replacing the state regime. And if you've listened to uh, Chairman Su, the chief of the OCC, he said that he wouldn't trust crypto companies until they're federally regulated. Well, I would argue that uh, we are federally regulated, so uh, we are uh, worthy of trust. Okay. So yeah, this is getting into the weeds a bit faster, but let's just discuss this because I did have questions about this. So what you're referring to is that there are state chartered qualified custodians in the crypto space, such as like, I think BitGo and Coindesk, and I, I forget some of the other companies, but 
you're saying that you believe that even though they technically are qualified custodians, that because of this update to this RAA rule for um, how assets for RAAs can be custody, crypto assets for RAAs can be custodied, that essentially those state chartered qualified custodians will not be able to do that. Is that what you're saying? That's the gist of it. But I would actually argue that the fact that they're qualified custodian isn't established in the first place. Essentially, they are custodian licensed under state regimes, you know, with the New York Department of Financial Services or any other state. But uh, if you follow the comments coming in from the SEC, there's a question of whether they meet the standards of a qualified custodian. Uh, and from a compliance and regulatory standpoint, if you're an institution who's handling clients' funds, you want to eliminate any sort of risk attendant to the compliance or regulatory side. And the best way to do that is to transition that business to a qualified custodian license under the federal securities laws. And wait, and just so I understand, you're saying what simply it's the fact that they re- receive their qualified custodian status by uh, a particular state that would not qualify them? Because I talked to some lawyers um, and they mentioned uh, what they called FUD, uh, the notion that these state chartered qualified custodians would not qualify. They called that FUD. Um, and so it sort of seems like maybe some lawyers who've looked into it feel like there's this rumor flying around, but it's it's probably not based in. I think there's been some guidance. I mean, I know our, our lawyers for, I don't have it off the, the reference off the top of my head, but I know they've been able to get some official guidance where they've established that state chartered trust companies uh, can be a good control location and therefore qualify as a qualified custodian. But I agree with Aaron. I mean, the direction of travel is towards federally regulated organizations. And and so, you know, a nationally chartered bank, you know, would also fit into that category as well as uh, the, 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 the special purpose broker dealer that uh, I think the Prometheum guys have gotten. Okay. Well, so we, we went way into the weeds like early on and I want to like be sure to give enough background for everybody. But, um, you know, I feel like this episode is super interesting because we keep hearing this, um, you know, a mantra from the SEC, come in and register. And then from the crypto side, we've heard, you know, there's no path for this. And so here you guys, I feel like represent almost some kind of new wave of how these things might be done. So let's just make sure we explain everything to the listeners. So FINRA approved both of your platforms. Why don't you unpack what it is that your platforms got approved for? Sure. So Prometheum has two entities. We've been approved as an ATS, which was in 2021, I believe. And that stands for, yeah, Alternative Trading System. Alternative Trading System. Essentially, it's the forum where crypto trading activity is going to migrate under the securities laws. But if you think about it, if you have a trading venue, what you also need is a custodial venue because you need to be able to have uh, retail and institutional custody and be able to clear and settle those transactions that occur on the ATS. So Prometheum was just recently, uh, this past week, announced that it was approved as a special purpose broker dealer. Uh, which is a major step forward for the industry because it's the first institution licensed under the federal securities laws that can custody digital asset securities, uh, which is a major step forward and will actually allow those ATSs to be further empowered because then they can, in theory, really allow for trading to develop on those markets. And I think, um, you know, from our perspective, we, you know, we were approved as a, as a regular broker dealer. Um, with an alternative trading system uh, license as well. 
for both equities and debt securities, both non-digital securities, as well as digital securities, which are defined as securities that are managed on a blockchain, whether that's a private permission system or a public uh, ledger system. And I think we also actually got an ECN permission for listed equities uh, as well. And what does that mean? ECN is Electronic Communications Network. So that's basically a step below sort of a national stock exchange and allowed to trade listed equities. Uh, as opposed to um, registered but unlisted equities or private placements, and o- basically the OTC market, which is which is generally what you're dealing with with digital asset securities. And I think there's differences, some pretty interesting differences that we, we probably should talk about around those ATS licenses, and even around the special purpose broker dealer, you know, and the ATS, because I think there's you know some interesting kind of odd rulemaking by the SEC around being able to do the custody, but then not being able to do clearing and settlement. And so how do you bridge the gap between the ATS and the special purpose broker dealer that's doing custody? The way our system is is set up and the way we're approved is under a three-step letter. We're not allowed to custody digital asset securities. So all of our clients hold fiat currencies and digital asset securities in regular, you know, qualified custodians, whether those are banks or trust companies or something like uh, we could, in fact, partner with Prometheum and and actually use them as a custodian, which is a super interesting possibility for a lot of different reasons. But and I think the, the, the big distinguishing thing around the ATS is, is there's two methods of doing the clearing and settlement or and, and they, they refer to them as SEC three step letter and SEC four step letter. And the four-step letter is essentially just bilateral credit after the match happens on the ATS. Uh, sorry, not bilateral credit, bilateral settlement, which, which implies bilateral credit actually also, uh, after the match happens on the ATS. So in other words, if you and I trade on the ATS and we have a trade match, you and I have to, I have to set, wire you dollars and have you send me securities in, in some fashion. And the, the three-step letter is, is much more relevant for scaling uh, a business in digital asset securities because it, it, it basically involves custodian-driven settlement. So the, the people that match on the trade tell the custodian to settle the trade, and so they have much lower counterparty credit and settlement risk. And, and so what's part of why I think we got approved quickly is because our whole system is designed around sort of custodian-driven settlement, and it, and it kind of just mapped really nicely onto the three-step letter. So we had a really clear path to basically comply with um, all of those rules. Okay, so um, because a big part of the audience here is, you know, not from traditional finance, many of them are kind of tech or crypto people. I thought it might be helpful if we, uh, first of all, just look at how exchanges work in traditional finance, or or really just how the system overall works in traditional finance. We can contrast that with how crypto exchanges have worked so far. So please feel free to correct me if any of this is inaccurate. In a traditional securities market, the exchange is not consumer-facing. It it facilitates trading for its members, and the members are all broker-dealers, and the broker-dealers are the ones who interface with the customers. So the exchange then is limited to disseminating prices, monitoring trading activity, running the matching engine, matching orders, et cetera. And as we've been mentioning, they do not take custody of the assets. They themselves do not do the actual trading. So then the broker-dealer members of that exchange can hold the customer funds and they can accept the orders from their customers who can be both institutional and retail for the trades. They can even provide credit to customers to support trading activities. 
And then there's another entity, which is the clearinghouse that keeps track of who owns the shares. It updates the accounts of the trading parties. So for example, um, in TradFi, that would be something like the National Securities Clearing Corporation or NSCC. Then another uh, institution involved is the DTCC, the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation that performs the settlement, which is when the actual exchange of money happens for the securities. So obviously in crypto, this is at least so far, super different. The crypto exchange tends to do pretty much all those functions. They will match the ordered orders, they custody the assets, they clear, they settle the trade, they're also consumer-facing. Um, and then if we get into DeFi, it's like <laughs> really different. We've got you know these decentralized actors, they come together, they use this protocol. Um, it's basically like a type of software that's decentralized. And through that software, they can perform all these functions. Let's now talk about how how, you know, let's walk through one transaction use, using your platforms, which now appear to be sort of yet another way that all this would happen. And either of you can start. Yeah. And I, I guess just, you know, just to, for the listeners, um, sometimes people always wonder what what's the difference between clearing and settlement. Clearing is basically figuring out who owes who what. And then settlement is the actual change of ownership on the ultimate book of record. And so that's that's basically, uh, you know, those those two things, and everything you just described in terms of how it works in TradFi is exactly correct. That's how that's basically how it all works, and and as you pointed out in in crypto, um, and and I think this is a really really an important thing, and I and I think it it also speaks to kind of maybe why what some of the motivations are, and and I hope we get to this later in the conversation around the the reality that we both got approved means there is a path to do this, and I think there's things to talk about, like, what does that mean for things that might be illegally issued securities? And, and then there's there's other incentives that people have, like un, the, the way the exchanges are currently operating in crypto is they're relying on money transmitter licenses, right? So that means that they can hold client assets effectively on their balance sheet. And that's why we see a lot of the problems that we have, because when you sign that user agreement and you give you, you send your money to the exchange, if they're operating under that money transmitter license sort of regime, those assets are allowed to be on their balance sheet. So in theory, they could borrow those assets through another sub if they wanted to, probably legally, if, if the agreement sort of discloses that. And, and that's therein lies the problem, right? That's why you have FTX thinking they can loan assets to Alameda and all of these sorts of, these sorts of things going on. And, and, and yeah, I think- Yeah, although that, FTX was not a US-based exchange, but anyway- yeah, but, but well, I mean, FTX US, I mean, obviously is operating in the same way. I think that's, you know, that's a, obviously there's going to be a change where exchanges are going to be non-custodial. And if you think back to the FX markets, crypto exchanges, the way they operate, where they basically hold client assets, they do things like take the other side of the trade. They're doing all sorts of things that retail brokers used to do in the FX space 15 years ago that all got regulated out of existence. All of those practices were regulated out of existence. So the way it works um, in our model um, with a with three-step letter is basically clients hold their assets in their own accounts at their own custodians. So fiat currencies, digital asset securities, that means the custodians have the role of safeguarding those assets. Um, our technology basically allows the custodian to create subledgers that are blockchain based where those assets are reflected on those subledgers and and essentially things like real time pre-trade risk are reading client balances that are cryptographically provably on those custodial blockchain ledgers and effectively you then can put an order into the matching engine 
when you get a match, it's, it's executed effectively as an atomic swap or a change of ownership at the custodial level. And Aaron, um, how about you? How does it work on Prometheum? So I think let's look at it at a very high level. First, what we're seeing is a shift in the uh, crypto financial services ecosystem from one that's sort of uh, regulated under state licensure. We, uh, uh, Rosario mentioned the, the money transmitter license and basically uh, state custodial licenses. And we're seeing to a shift to entities regulated under on the federal level under the federal securities laws. And that's part of this maturation of the industry towards actually providing the investor protections, the segregation of customer funds and assets from that of the institution, uh, the fair and orderly markets, and basically everything that's required for the industry to move forward and to actually be taken uh, as seriously as any other asset class. Now, on the Prometheum level, uh, the way it works is that when everything's live, the asset will list on the ATS, excuse me, not list. And the difference is, as you mentioned before, with an exchange, this is an alternative trading system. There's distinctions. With an exchange, the exchange has to work directly with the issuer to determine what assets they list. With an ATS, an alternative trading systems, an ATS makes it an internal determination based on its customers' needs, whether it wants to support trading in that asset. So that's a distinction there. But if there's a determination basically that the asset is a security, meaning the digital asset is a security, uh, then it will be supported on Prometheum ATS. Uh, and that asset will actually also be custodied at Prometheum Capital. Uh, and when uh, we when that happens and when we uh, in the near future, we'll also be able to clear and settle those transactions that occur at the ATS. So in theory, you have the full life cycle of a trade. You have a trade that occurs on the ATS. Uh, it's cleared and settled at the custodian and those assets are custodied at that custodian. So basically, you provide the entire life cycle there of a trade and uh, by doing it under the federal securities laws, as opposed to the way it's done in the entire cryptoverse now, uh, you're basically integrating the investor protections that are required to move the industry forward. Now, you mentioned before when we were talking about how it works uh, in, you know, in the uh, virtual currency universe, the virtual currency exchanges. Now, one of the things that uh, we all hear about and we know exists in some capacity is those uh, exchanges in theory trading against their customers. Uh, these are one of those things that that just cannot fly once you integrate the benefits of the federal securities laws. And one of these things that are really needed for the industry to move forward uh, and be taken as seriously as they think they deserve. Yeah, I don't know if I, can't, I don't I'm not sure if there is a particular or is there a particular case of that that you know of? I would say that, you know, you there's been reports that at some point, 60 to 80 percent of trading is wash trades. It's basically bots trading against each other. Uh, and it, that leads to a manipulated market. Because yeah. it does, it's, you don't have a fair and orderly market then. Go yeah, ahead, Rosario. 100%. And, and, and we've even seen, I saw an article, like I tried to find it, but I couldn't find it again, where Gensler actually mentioned uh, or was quoted saying something like that, that I think even, and this, maybe I shouldn't mention names, but one of the major exchanges in the US has market making subsidiaries that are pricing into the venue, right? Those things are okay if, you, if those are adequately disclosed to the clients, right? But there are other practices in that, that originated in FX that they refer to as A booking and B booking. And that's basically where you analyze all your client trading flow by client, literally by client. And when, when you have client, you, the overwhelming majority of clients that are trading actively lose money, right? So taking the other side of the trade of the guys that always lose money and essentially being the one that makes the PL on their loss. Those are practices that were, you know, 
performed inside of F- retail FX brokers that that basically were also sort of regulated out of existence in this country, you know, along with a lot of the high leverage and everything else that people were doing. And a couple of questions. So um, when you talked about how six, there was a stat that 60% of, of trading on crypto exchanges is wash trading. Um, it, it, does that include, is that solely limited to U.S. exchanges or are you talking about globally? Because I remember a long time ago, Bitwise came out with a report and it implied, especially particularly on, you know, I think it was like Chinese exchanges at that time. I don't know if uh, now what, what it would be. Um, but at that time, you know, I think a lot of that was stemming from there. I, 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 it might have been globally, but I'd have to check. But I, it's it's known in the industry that there are these manipulative trading practices that occur. Again, when you don't have proper oversight and proper regulation and proper enforcement by an agency that's capable, uh, you know, when the cat's away, the mice will play. And then the other thing I wanted to ask was, so when I described the TradFi way of processing a transaction, there were kind of like four main entities involved. Um, or maybe it was five actually. <laughs> um, and then, uh, for, you know, obviously in the example of crypto exchanges, it's all just one. So it sounds like to me for both of your, um, new systems, it will end up being two. Is that correct? Yeah. You basically have the custodial entity and then you have the, the ATS entity, which is effectively where the matching engine technology is and the matching happens. And, and it's kind of, um, in our, in our models a little bit different because what we're really, really what we're, what is happening is you have sort of peer to peer trading that self clears and settles where we're just programmatically having the, the, the clients notify the custodian to process the net settlement movements, but we can make those settlements atomic so that nobody has a go first situation, right? Like the way everything works off exchange today in crypto is through bilateral credit and bilateral settlement. So after the trade, at the end of the day, you figure out what you owe all your counterparties, you wire money to those counterparties, they send you, you know, what they owe you in terms of digital assets or digital asset securities. And, you know, that, that obviously is also one of the, if you look at the direction of travel from a regulatory perspective, they're trying to clean all that stuff up, right? That, 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 that's really not fit for purpose for institutional trading or fiduciaries, right? If you're a fiduciary, meaning you're running, you're not running, it's not your own money, it's client money, and you're a regulated entity, should you really be wiring money to some other entity and hoping that they send you an asset in return, right? Those sorts of things are just not fit for purpose in, in, in a proper market. Okay. And then Aaron, I wanted to ask you about the special purpose broker dealer regime, because I think, you know, that's the sort of new thing that uh, we're talking about here. Um, so can you describe, first of all, what it is, what it does, um, also what are like the limits on its activities? So the special purpose broker dealer is basically the federal custodian licensing under the securities laws to custody digital asset securities. Now, what initially it was released in December 2020, I believe it was called the Christmas release at the time, uh, and then it was adopted into law into the Federal Register in April 2021. So it provided a clear framework by which to actually custody digital assets under the securities laws. Now, previously, people said, well, you know, no one had been approved for that. So even if there is a framework, maybe there's no path forward. But now that Promethium Capital has been approved as a special purpose broker dealer, that argument is moot. You can't make that argument anymore. There, and it, it's monumental in the sense that uh, it shows that there's a pathway forward for crypto in the United States. And, and also, you know, as all the, in my opinion, all the sort of trading and custodial activity migrates to venues that are licensed under the securities laws, you need to have the firm. I think the most important part of that is the custodian side, 
because there will be ATSs, but until you have custodians, those ATSs aren't empowered. And as Chairman Gensler has said, the overwhelming majority of digital assets are securities. What that, so let's analyze what that means. That means that they have to be traded, custodied, handled, uh, et cetera, under the securities laws. Now, what does that mean for the ex existing crypto financial service providers? One, it means that they don't have the proper licenses. And two, it means that their tech stack is arguably obsolete because it's not meant to handle uh, digital assets the way that securities are supposed to be uh, handled, processed, traded, custodied, settled, et cetera. So it, it requires a big rebuild there, in my opinion, as well. So why do we see such intransigence from the virtual currency exchanges, the established players? Because it, it, it's, it's a significant task to update your technology, to go get the proper licenses. It's a, it's a big process, uh, and it would take them a significant amount of time. So instead, what we see is that they move to fight, you know, in the court of public opinion, uh, which I would argue is always a sign, uh, is never a sign of something good, I guess is the best way to say it. And what's, what's the real way you want to say it? Uh, what's the real way I want to say it? I, I don't know if that means you think you're winning the battle. It, it, it might be more of a, uh, a, you know, a Hail Mary type effort as opposed to a uh, calculated, logical, rational step. And, but I do have a question, which is, um, you know, when we originally laid out kind of like all the number of entities involved in the different processes, um, you know, I think a lot of people in the crypto community would say that um, forcing there to be more intermediaries where there, where it's like not necessary doesn't really make sense. And I was curious if you, you know, had a response to that. So like the, the, the interesting concept of decentralization. Uh, particularly on the exchange side. I mean, we see a lot of the, the activity occur now in centralized entities, entities that have intertwined business lines where they're providing essentially trading, custody, uh, banking, lending, staking, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, services. And I would argue that's a centralized point of failure. Plus, it's not actually integrating the investor protections required under the federal securities laws. So you're much more exposed as a customer there. And furthermore, when that institution goes belly up, uh, because it's not under the federal securities laws, in a lot of those cases, you become a general creditor. And that is not good because an investor should gain or lose money or make a profit or a loss based on their own investment decisions, not based on the mismanagement of the entity where they choose to trade or custody their assets. And then so basically under your setup, if um, either one or both of your entities were to go to bank go bankrupt, then you're saying that those clients would not be general unsecured creditors. What would they be? There's a segregation of customer funds and assets from that of the institutions under 15C33, the customer protection rule. And if you're in compliance with the customer protection rule, their assets would be protected. They would still be their own. Okay. So what you're saying is like in the case of FTX, where it even said in the terms of service, you, you retain title over your assets. You're saying somehow that's like, uh, uh, granted, I, I, as I said earlier, they were not a U.S.-based entity, but um, you're saying that's not sufficient, that there's some extra step that happens when you have the two entities split that If there's no oversight and there's no enforcement and there's no reporting, basically, you're, you're, you're your own SRO. You're going to make sure you enforce your own rules. And as we know, they had such high standards when it came to risk management and other sort of internal, you know, uh, compliance considerations. You need to have an entity that oversees the participants in order to make sure that they stay kosher. Yeah, and and, and, I, and I think a lot to 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 what Aaron was saying earlier. I mean, part of why they don't want to do it is because they're monetizing the current structure. And you know, I mean, what Pasonic does with its on its enterprise software side of its business, I can make any exchange non-custodial in a day. 
Like we, that's, that's what we do. We invented off exchange settlement. We use, you know, separate regulated segregated custodians to hold client assets. Exchange can still do what it does and match trades. So there's another incentive that's driving those decisions. And, and I think, um, you know, part of it might be the fact that they're like, you know, it seems like the path of least resistance to fight because not only do they need the licensing, which we've already proven anybody can get, we got them. Um, but they also have the issue of what do you do with where most of the revenue is coming from on any of these exchanges? It's coming from things that are illegally issued securities from the SEC's perspective. So, you know, and that, and that, you know, and, and how do you fix that problem? Right. And that's, and that, and that doesn't bode well. If that's where sixty percent of your revenue is coming from, like a Coinbase, in that respect, I think the issuance problem is its own thing. You know, the the registration component, but it's more of a question of the trading and custodial venues being licensed under the laws. Uh, and essentially, um, you know, the anyone who is arguing that there is a lack of regulatory clarity uh, is basically best served by the argument that there is a lack of regulatory clarity. Think about it. Like you want, you want Congress to create new, new legislation. And then what they could do, they're going to create a new federal agency. So basically we're half a decade to a decade out. And in the meantime, the investors who use these platforms occasionally have to deal with black swan events. The trading's not fair and orderly. And, you know, they're basically not protected by the investor protections. Uh, they're the ones who lose in that case. The best way forward for their actual customers is the application of the federal securities laws. And it's what Chairman Gensler said when he testified. He said his clients are the U.S. investors. That's who he's looking to protect. And it makes a lot of sense. All right. Last quick question before we go to the ad break. I just was curious, um, you know, as you mentioned, the special purpose broker dealers were first proposed in 2021. So why has it taken it about two years for one to be approved? So it was adopted in April 2021 into law. Right. And it takes a long time because you have to build the systems to be compliant with the regulation. You're trailblazing. Essentially, it hasn't been done before. You have to not just build the systems, right, that have to be compliant. You also have to have the operational and compliance procedures and basically all the internal mechanisms to make sure that when you are approved, you will be able to be compliant with everything that's required under the federal securities laws in that release. And there is a lot there. I'm not going to say it, it, it's not an easy process. Uh, it just requires focused effort and an actual belief that digital assets are securities. Yeah. So in a way, I feel like it's almost like you guys are saying we're iTunes and Spotify and we're um, coming in now um, after like Napster and LimeWire have, you know, been the dominant programs for a while. Is that kind of a good summary? I have not heard such a good analysis in a long time. I think that's pretty good. <laughs> okay, okay. So we're going to um, talk in a moment about exactly which assets are going to be trading on your venues in a moment. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Join over 80 million people using Crypto.com, one of the easiest places to buy, trade, and spend over 250 cryptocurrencies. With the Crypto.com Visa card, you can spend your crypto anywhere and get rewarded at every step. Up to 5% cash back instantly, plus 100% rebates for your Netflix and Spotify subscriptions, and zero annual fees. New users enjoy zero credit card fees on crypto purchases in their first seven days. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Back to my conversation with Aaron and Rosario. So as we've kept saying throughout the episode, you guys are going to be trading digital asset securities. 
Um, so how are you guys defining that term? I was curious because I'm sure you know there's this like strict definition that everyone agrees on, which is clearly recognized securities that just come in a blockchain wrapper. But I wondered if you were also including this definition that's more contested, which is the one you've referenced that Chair Gensler of the SEC has used, which is all crypto assets except Bitcoin are securities. So how are you defining it? What are you going to list? Prometheum and the ATS and the custodian uh, is able to support digital asset securities. That is not traditional equities. In theory, it is an equity issued on a blockchain. But our goal is to be able to support the existing uh, investment contract universe of crypto. And Chairman Gensler has said that the overwhelming majority of digital assets, arguably everything except for Bitcoin, is a security. Uh, and Prometheum uh, has uh, that same belief. So you think you can list everything but Bitcoin, essentially, all crypto assets but Bitcoin? Again, it's a determination made by the compliance teams and the operational teams at both the broker at both the ATS and the special purpose broker dealer levels, uh, based on a you know a amalgamation of different factors. You know the uh, and and if a determination is made that an investment contract exists and therefore it's a security, uh, we would then intend to be able to support trading in that asset. Okay, so it sounds like the Gensler guideline is sort of one that you will be using, essentially. Yes. Okay. And Rosario. Yeah, I think for us, I mean, it's 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 a little more complex than that. So first of all, we have we have slight differences between our approvals. Um, we can't custody. Uh, they have a special purpose broker dealer which can custody. They can't do non blockchain based securities. We can do non blockchain based securities and blockchain based securities, both public ledger and private ledger. So we have potentially a, a bigger universe of things that we can list, and we're doing transactions or partnerships now with uh, other companies that want to issue either, well, just support standard sort of private equity, kind of like a Forge Global or what you see on like an angels list where you have buyers and sellers of of equity in in Web3 companies. That's one of the partnerships that we have uh, that we're working on. We have another one that's just standard commercial paper issuance by very large corporate treasuries, um, but they want to issue on a private permission ledger so we can support um, the creation of those assets on our private permission custodial ledger side of things, and then list those assets and run a secondary market in those assets to trade them. Um, obviously, anything that has been properly registered that we think is clean and uh, you know we can list and trade and would 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 love to do that. Um, I think that it, it it's really important though that we don't ignore the fact that most of what all of the crypto other than Bitcoin that the SEC believes are securities. They also believe are illegally issued securities. And so in order to be compliant, it does not mean, I want to be really clear that it does not mean just because we have these approvals that we can take anything that's out there indiscriminately and just list it and and trade it and support trading in it. That doesn't really work that way. Um, so we've been focusing a lot of our effort around sort of how do you re- help the ish- token issuers to remediate that situation so that they can become compliant, at least in the United States, uh, with the security, if they are securities, with the securities that they've issued by bringing them under a proper registration. Oh, wow. Can I ask a question? So is that through rescission or is that through a secondary registration such that eventually those liquid tokens then get liquidity into the public market that develops with the registration? And wait, and define rescission, it's what you pull the assets out of circulation and Rescission is you offer the investor the right to get out of that investment because it was an illegal type offering. It was an unregistered security. And if the investor doesn't take that right, 
then essentially they basically made the agreement and there's no longer a legal claim against you such in that event. Now, the other other possibility I think that Rosario might be implicating is a subsequent registration of a new grouping of that same token, which would then in theory be able to establish a public market, a trading market for that asset. And those other tokens that previously exist, as long as they've been held for a year and a day, could then be traded under Rule 144 uh, and that liquidity could be introduced into the public market. Yeah, I mean, let me let me describe sort of that. I, I agree with everything that you you're you're saying, but I think I think there's a I think there is kind of a path forward, right? So here's here's the way we've been thinking about it. If you are a token issuer, right, and this and this is, you know, I think this is very important because the, to understand the landscape as well, because you have venture capital firms, major venture capital firms that have financed companies that have issued these tokens that they themselves hold the tokens. Some of them have onsold the tokens to the general public. And they might all be illegally issued security. So I think there's very big incentives to figure out how to remediate this. And, and Aaron raises, raises a great point. One of the things that will not work is the typical way that these things get remediated is through rescission, because that means everybody gives the money. Basically, you have to offer to give everybody's money back. Nobody can do that because all of these projects have been spending the money. So what we're trying to work <laughs> on is a no action letter around a remediation plan where you get your amnesty. In other words, if you if you make the if you become compliant in the United States, you don't have you don't get prosecuted effectively. You don't have to do full rescission. But the way we're thinking about it uh, is that you could you could easily have a smart contract that takes in on an opt-in basis the old token and essentially burns it and mints it again with some metadata tagging that links it to a proper registration statement. And that you get some really unique benefits of that because that means that you could even have a DEX or a DeFi protocol that could be U.S. capital markets compliant processing only those tokens. And you can have a programmatic way of swapping them out if, if the token issuer is willing to do an actual registration, right? But, but Rosario, in that event, won't those tokens become illiquid unless they're registered in the subsequent registration? Well, no, I think they have to, I think to, to, to whatever they're issuing, any new token that they're issuing, they would have to issue under the new registration. I think that's the and point. And then it's a burn one for one, you're saying. Burn, that. burn one for one. And, and, and essentially, and I, think, and I think this is another thing, Laura, just to put, I just want to put some scope around this. People think this is this big, huge threat thing to do a registration statement. It, it is literally like a fifty dollars to $100,000 legal exercise. And if you look at some of the provisions under the Jobs Act, if you have less than a billion dollars of revenue, you don't even have to do most of the reporting that everybody's so scared of. <laughs> so there is a, I think there's a real opportunity to let U.S. companies become compliant in a way where the token is not stays fungible, right? So you only have to, you only become compliant if you want to if you're a holder in the United States. Doesn't affect how it's custodied, traded on exchanges. Doesn't affect anybody outside the country. You can do this one for one swap out and have a compliant version of the token in the United States. Okay, I have so many questions. So first of all, because these token projects they're sort of global in nature, how does that play in? Because you know we're just really talking about this U.S. regime. So would they need to do the rescission for you know like let's say they have like a hundred million token supply or something like that? Do they have to get everybody to do that in the U.S.? Because like what I was imagining was, do you remember when there was some kind of issue with the chargers for iPhones and then they had to reissue a bunch of them with these like green stickers on the back to be like, this is the new one that's okay and is not, you know, it doesn't have this faulty design or whatever. Um, I'm just imagining like the tokens being like that, like you pull back the the chargers without the green button 
green stickers and then you issue the ones with the green stickers. But I'm just confused how this works for like a global situation. Everybody's doing programmatic compliance if they're doing anything with security tokens uh, today, right? It's a, if they're doing it compliantly. So no, so being able to look at metadata on a token is not a big deal if you are a custodian or somebody else who's a regulated entity who's handling those things, you know. And so, in other words, if you're an institution with all your with all of those tokens at Coinbase custody, if people adopted some sort of a framework like this. Why wouldn't Coinbase custody just do the swap out for you and and therefore you're now holding the, the tokens that are under the registration statement? But they would have to get all exchanges all across the world to do that and all the liquidity pools. I think it's the only possible way it could work in, in my mind is it's strictly an opt-in only thing for people that are affected by U.S. law and want to be compliant with U.S. law. There's also a couple of things. One, I would, in regards to the point you made about the Reg A plus, I would say that you probably need to be tier two, which means to be means means you need to be PCA or be audited in order to really allow for trading. And explain that for people. When Rosaria was mentioning before about the regulation and the issuance of yours, register how you're going to choose to properly register or have an exemption to issue that security, right? Right. There's a full registration with an S1, or you can do probably the best, a good alternative is a Reg A+, which has lower sort of reporting requirements in theory. Now, the issue is, is when you go to do the Reg A+, if you really want to do one that allows you to have the most trading in the future, you want to do a Tier 2 Reg A+, which has the PCAOB auditing requirement. Now, why am I so, uh, it's, which is a higher accounting standard. Uh, it's basically, don't forget, when you do a registration statement, what you're doing is you're making disclosures about your businesses, listing all risk factors. They're going over your auditing and your financials. They're not actually approving your business, like some people argue. They're not approving your business lines. You know, they're basically just saying that this document is disclosing all the material facts and that the auditing is good and that the risk factors are there. Uh, so that's just to contest that argument being made uh, in general. But uh, the reason I ask that because is when you come to the issuance, it's it's a sometimes it's a little bit more complicated. I would uh, note that Prometheum in a different lifetime was one of the first companies to file a Reg A plus for a token. Uh, so we have a lot of experience with this. I would say we were likely the first company uh, that did not work, and that was very uh, positive in in its own weird way. But essentially, it's uh, I understand what you're saying there. I think there's an alternative, and then when it comes to the when you asked a question before, Laura, about the United States for tokens in the United States versus outside the United States, the SEC primarily cares about U.S. investors. So in theory, as long as you're doing a proper registration and offering to U.S. investors, what goes on outside the United States, as long as it complies with AML KYC and you do an exempt offering outside the United States, it doesn't touch the United States. There's not necessarily as many regulatory implications for those holders outside the United States. Uh, so that's why I think it, in theory... Uh, there might be a pathway forward there. But I, it, we've been focusing a lot on this registration component. And I, I think it's sort of, it's definitely important, but it misses the forest of the trees in some sense, because what is, I think will happen before these registration issues are solved is a migration of the existing trading activity, existing custody activity to entities that are licensed under the securities laws. Now, registration will be solved or the lack of registration, what happens with certain tokens will play out over time. But before that occurs, I think you'll see a lot of the uh, activity that's currently on virtual currency exchanges migrate to these federally licensed entities for trading and custody of digital assets. Because, again, if all assets are securities, they need to be treated and traded and handled as such under the securities laws. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I agree with that. But I mean, are you going to are you I mean, are you guys going to list and trade something on the ATS 
or custody it if it's an, if it's if it's deemed to be an illegally issued security or you're going to go through a, you're going to go through a process to figure out which ones you're comfortable with that you think are um, there's issued. internal compliance c- considerations there and determinations yeah. about what you're comfortable with yeah. I, I agree with you that that's probably the area where it's the least clear but that will play out over time I, I thought it was very telling you know when chairman Gensler testified in the House Financial Services Committee and one of the first uh, uh, committee members, I believe it was the chairperson, said, is Ethereum a security? And then people got upset because Chairman Gensler didn't answer. But the reality is, if he answers one way or another, basically he either knocks off half the market cap of ETH in a day, or he shoots it up the other way. I, I thought it was actually probably responsible not to be all of a sudden make some sort of incredibly influential statement in a public hearing that will potentially affect a lot of the holders of Ethereum. I think it was actually admirable that he didn't do it. So let's now just talk about specific assets because, um, you know, I noticed both of you have screenshots of um, the app on your homepages. So like, for instance, Aaron, the screenshot on the Prometheum homepage shows, um, you know, the app, which shows FIL, which is Filecoin. And already we know the SEC has given notice, it believes that's a security. So, okay, so you're trading digital asset security. So it fits in that bucket. But then there was also Comp and Flow and Celo and GRT, which is the graph. Um, And I didn't know, like, uh, you know, does that hint that you guys are going to have those available? And if so, like, did you and the SEC already agree that those do fall in that bucket of digital asset securities? Or like, how did, you know, or, or, yeah, I'm just curious how this process works. Yeah, I, I believe what you're referring to is only an example. At the time, we're not announcing the assets we're going to support. Uh, but again, it's an internal determination whether an asset is a digital asset security on the Prometheum ATS and the ProCap levels from the compliance and operations side. Uh, and so basically, uh, based on that determination, that will make that will <laughs> that determination will determine the assets we support. Well, I was going to say what I saw on your homepage, um, <laughs> which is um, there was a longer list, actually, of tradable assets in a screenshot. And actually, it even had some BTC trading pairs. Um, but I didn't know really what that meant. Um, like, is that saying BTC is an addition to the securities? Or just tell me about your process for listing. Yeah. So, so we're, um, so today what we do, uh, well, that's not, it's not indicative and that's the parent company, uh, homepage, right? So we're, we're more of a oh. infrastructure provider. So we both operate infrastructure that people use today to trade fiat currencies against digital assets that we believe are commodities like Bitcoin and Ethereum. Uh, and there's only very, very small number of those. And then we also license it to other people that might trade other assets using our technology or use our technology for clearing and settlement and elimination of counterparty risk trading other assets. And so it's not indicative, but I think we're, we're of the opinion that we can only list and trade things that are, um, you know, basically approved securities that are not illegally issued. Um, it would be wonderful if we could just suddenly take everything that's out there in the market that Gensler thinks is a security and trade it, that would be, that would actually be awesome from a business perspective, but I don't think we're, I don't think we're able to do that. One other thing that I think is, you know, a lot of people wonder, and if you look at some of the banking regs, you know, some banks are, are, you know, not even able to do certain things with um, digital asset securities that are issued on an L1 on a, on a public blockchain. And, and so when we work with a lot of the banks that are that are in our cross custodian net settlement working group, and these are major banks like State Street and guys like that, 
they're very focused on tokenization of existing non-natively digital securities and not necessarily doing that on a layer one, but doing it on a private permission system. And those assets can also be listed and traded on an ATS through our approvals with the broker-dealer ATS license. And so I think that's where there will be a very big push towards that over the next uh, over the coming years. I think most of the the assets that will be in play will ultimately be that, unless uh, we get more clarity from the SEC that we can just take all of the other existing tokens that are out there that are securities and and list and trade those safely. Like I think we would want more guidance from the uh, from the SEC on that. I okay. totally agree with that as a concept. But if you think about it, the chairman Gensler said recently that. Virtual currency exchanges are trading securities and time is reg- running out for them to register under the securities laws. So what we've seen in enforcement is we've seen first it goes after lending, then staking, then stable coins, then custody, and then finally virtual currency exchanges. That goes from the most risky to the least risky parts of the crypto ecosystem. So where does that activity go? I don't think that the goal is to harm investors such that they won't have a venue by which they can actually trade those assets. If that occurs, the price bottom, in theory, would drop out of a lot of those assets. And that's not what's in the best interest of those investors. So I agree with you that, you know, uh, over time, we will get more clarity. I also think that um, there has to be a place for that activity to occur in order for the, you know, the industry to move forward. When you say time is running out for these exchanges to register, is there some limitation there, some kind of deadline? No, that's what Chairman Gensler had said. But there's no like regulation saying if you've launched in this way and, you know, then you have like X number of years to register. No, it's basically you are trading securities. You don't have the proper licenses. You're not handling them properly. You are running out of time to basically get the even the opportunity to register under the securities laws. Before an enforcement action. In theory. And that's the implication. And if you don't, I believe those entities will perish. And wait, yeah. but, so I'm so confused. Like, why did Coinbase get approved to you know, become a publicly traded company then? So that's what I was referencing before. When you do a registration statement, right, the SEC does not approve your business. The SEC approved a lot of public companies that were marijuana companies. Those are federally illegal. So the argument doesn't make sense because what they're doing is they go through your disclosures. They go through your, your accounting, your auditing. They go through your risk factors and they all make sure you have all the material facts that you're disclosing anything that an investor might think relevant when making an investment decision. That's the, de- term, that's the definition of a material fact or you're not leaving out any facts that are considered relevant. And that's what they approve. They approve the offering document. They don't actually approve your business lines. It, it's, it's, it's a, it's basically taking a concept which is well known in the legal universe and distorting it in the realm of public affairs to basically serve your own interests. But it's, it's just a fallacy. So basically, any company that's doing something that's illegal can become a publicly listed company. Is that what you're saying? I mean, it, it, again, I don't know if you would say, I, in theory, I would hope not. But it, at least for when it came to the marijuana companies, it, the case, it's case in point. What they were doing was federally illegal. On the state level, they might have been allowed to do it, but they were approved as well. This is just sort of blowing my mind at this point. But I- <laughs> no, I, Rosario, you can confirm what I'm saying. No, if I'm saying anything, you're 100. You're 100 right. I mean, you can you can you can easily you can easily see that parallel there with those types of companies. I mean, and and but you you said something really interesting earlier, Aaron. You made a reference to Rule 144. Is is there a and you're and, and I think the listeners should know that Aaron is a lawyer and I am not. I'm I'm curious about uh, what you were referencing there. Like, is there a is there something under the law there with 144 where if you where these these things that were illegally issued can can ultimately get cleaned up by just through through a matter of time and how they're transacted? 
The reference I was making there was if you were to do a subsequent registration of a certain number of tokens. Now, what would that happen with those tokens that weren't registered in that offering? In theory, they would not be able to trade into the public market right? because okay. they're not registered. So that's when you could, in theory, use 144. Got it, got it, got it. Okay. And wait, what did, so define 144 for the audience? It's, it's a rule by which um, a illiquid security uh, is able to what's called remove the restrictive legend, meaning they move from being illiquid to being a liquid asset. So meaning they can be traded into, traded into public markets. They could actually uh. be traded versus they, it, 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 an illiquid instrument cannot be traded on uh, publicly. And basically you'd have to do a private securities transaction with another arguably accredited investor in order to be able to uh, uh, have that transaction. Whereas once an instrument's liquid, you can trade it publicly on you know, any sort of public market. Okay. And, that, and that's all qualified institutional buyers, right? For 144? Isn't that all quibs basically? Um, I don't, I think it's more expensive than that. Interesting. Okay. We'll try to find that out and maybe insert something if we can before this goes out. Um, so you guys, you know, we've been discussing like which assets you guys are going to be listing. So I need to ask you, are you going to be listing ETH? Uh, I, I believe that since the, uh, ICO in 2015, Ethereum has been an investment contract. And there is no legal precedent where a security, meaning an investment contract that therefore is a security, morphs into a non-security. There's been sort of ideas of sufficiently decentralized posited out there, but they're not really based in legal precedent. So once a security, always a security under the, the you know legal precedents that exist. And as such, while we're not announcing anything at this current time, as Chairman Gensler has noted, and I'll sound like a broken record, the overwhelming majority of digital assets, basically everything besides for Bitcoin is a investment contract and therefore a security. Yeah. And uh, our, our answer is we, we're, we're currently supporting Ethereum, but not on the broker dealer side of things, because as you know, the broker dealer ATS can't deal with digital assets that are, that are not securities. I think we've, we've taken the position, at least historically, that thought ETH was a commodity. And I think the CFTC sort of indicates that they agree with that. But, I, but, I, but it raises a really interesting point that you just you brought up, Aaron, and that is that one of the things that has been put forth by some of the le- thought leaders on the legal side of things, um, you know, and I think you know some of these folks like Joshua Clayman and, and others, like there, there's a concept that might make sense actually for uh, something to be able to morph from what started out as a security for capital raising purposes and ultimately, you know, becomes sufficiently decentralized and and becomes really a utility token and 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 not a security and is used in various other ways other than uh, for purposes of raising capital. And I think I think that's a super interesting concept. There's no legal precedent for that whatsoever. So I think it's a long way out to kind of get any kind of guidance or if that if that could even ever be a thing. But it is a very interesting concept uh, that I've heard some folks talk about. To paraphrase the previous chairman of the SEC, Chairman uh, Clayton, uh, people don't speculate on laundromat tokens. <laughs> and that was that was the whole argument then. People speculate on investments. Uh, I don't. I, I don't know. That one seems out there to me. <laughs> All right. Well, I will say that another wrench um, that might get thrown into this is that Representative Emmer and Representative DeSoto. Um, introduced a bill that would enable an asset that was sold as part of an investment contract to later become deemed a commodity. So 
Um, who knows if that will get passed, but um, that's also potentially in the works. So one other thing that I was wondering is like, so Bosonic, I guess, has like kind of a bigger range of things that it can list. But for the part that, you know, concerns digital asset securities, did you guys have to get a list of those approved by the SEC? Erin, it seems like you are just sort of saying this is like an internal decision with your compliance team. So I was curious, like, you know, who's deciding and like, how are you creating that decision process? Like, is it in conjunction with the SEC or how does that whole thing work? It's not something that you is part of your uh, new member application where you actually talk specifically about the assets you're going to list. You're really just you're basically just saying that, you know, you're going to you're going to be dealing with securities in our case, digital asset securities or non digital, not non digital asset securities. And, and it's all about compliance and sort of the mechanisms in place for how you do matching and essentially, essentially protect the customers. That's really what the whole thing is all about. So I think the decision about what you list ultimately comes down to, to the firm and their legal counsel and sort of their internal processes, as Aaron pointed out. You know, I, I, I think uh, I'll be very interested to keep talking with you, Aaron, and see what you guys do, because I think uh, maybe we can take a page from that book, because it would certainly be nice to be able to start transacting some of these other assets. Uh, again, we've always worked very closely with regulators and compliance has been our first consideration. Uh, we were incubated out of a federal securities law firm with molecular expertise in brokerage and, and you know, financial infrastructure related activities. We're obviously going to make sure to be as in tune with how compliance operates as possible and not take any sort of, you know, grand risks or any, or any sort of major statements, because um, I think that in general, what's happening here is sort of a crawl, walk, run approach. You will see this migration occur. It'll just be with the system growing over time. Now, when, when you look at like the Chicago Board of Options Exchange, when it launched, it launched with two contracts that traded for four hours a day, I believe. Right. And then it builds out from there. Then it basically, and I believe it was only long Right. So like, you know, or it was maybe, or maybe it, whatever it is, but essentially like what you'll see is that once these, this activity starts to migrate to these securities compliant ecosystems, first you'll see custody and trading evolve. Then you'll also see, you know, uh, potentially margin and additional uh, sort of developments as this sort of ecosystem develops out. And overall, what you'll see beyond that is the development of a national market system for digital assets. Uh, just not the exact same way that it occurred with equities, but it will occur to eventually look something similar to that. Now, there won't be a DTC or NSCC, but like there will be a national market system that will develop because as more people are approved and more people are compliant under the federal securities laws, I think the pie will continue to grow and it'll have a network effect as opposed to being a famine mentality. And I was also curious because, um, as you guys know, for securities, there are disclosure requirements. So for the securities that you guys do list, will you or the SEC require those same kind of disclosures from those issuers? Um, you know, for instance, similar to the ones that we see for securities listed on national securities exchanges. You know, we've seen the SEC talk about that, uh, but, you know, I didn't know how this was going to be implemented for your new entities. Well, in respect to a... National Securities Exchange versus an ATS, alternative trading system, the National Securities Exchange has to work with the issuer. Uh, that's the distinction here. Uh, and basically, they can't list an asset that they haven't worked with the issuer in that sense. On an alternative trading system, uh, it's basically an inter a determination based on your customer needs, and it's basically matching buyers and sellers in that sense. So it, there's a distinction there that I think gives you a little bit more flexibility as to what assets you support. 
And I think that sort of that'll be a positive thing going forward for the industry there. And so you won't require those kinds of disclosures because they're not actually required. We will make sure that uh, anything we do is compliant under the federal securities laws. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, and I think to say it another way, what Aaron's saying is, is it's between the issuers and the buyers. And so, you know, the, the whatever the issuers are putting forth, I mean, obviously we want to make sure that they're not fraudulent, you know, uh, companies and things like that. And there's all sorts of, you know, uh, bars to and things to boxes to check around being compliant, but it ultimately is just a, as he said, a different a different animal, right? It's between uh, it's between the issuers and the and the and the buyers. We don't actually even have to uh, list the or or provide all of those uh, that information directly. Like they can get that information directly from the issuers or from the issuers' website. Uh, in fact. Okay, so this question is around the fact that actually Terry Gensler has kind of implied in the past that he would actually prefer a national securities exchange model for trading of crypto asset securities, not ATSs. And obviously, that's not what's actually happening because um, you guys have these ATSs. So I was curious, from your interactions with the SEC, does it seem to you that the agency is now leaning more toward using this model of ATSs for crypto exchanges rather than national securities exchanges? I just want to clarify, to my understanding, the reference to national securities exchanges is when there was discussions between the SEC and the largest virtual currency exchanges that basically said they would have to register as a national securities exchange based on the services they were providing. I don't necessarily think that they were promoting a national security exchange versus an ATS. I think that they were saying, entity we're speaking to, entity XYZ, right? You need to would have to register as a national securities exchange if you want to be compliant under the securities laws based on the activities and you know the business lines that you provide. Yeah, I think I, I, I think that's right, and I think their intention. I mean, and, and and there's just lots of practical considerations. I mean, if you're a national securities exchange, you have to publish all of your trades into into the SIP. I mean, those are those are things that don't even run twenty four seven. I mean, there's a years and years of infrastructure changes that would have to happen to have a national securities exchange trading digital assets 24-7. And, uh, and it would involve collaboration and cooperation with the owners of that, which are the other national stock exchanges, et cetera, right? So I think, I think, I think this, is the, this is the model forward. And, and uh, Aaron's, I think that is right about the reference to that. It's just, it's just the nature of what they're doing would put them into that category. You know, we have a subset of, of permissions that are a, slight, a step below a national stock exchange but perfectly suitable for running a business like what a, a major centralized exchange is running uh, if, if for trading digital asset securities. And then also, like, you have to follow, like, if you look at the history of Wall Street, follow the NASDAQ model. I believe NASDAQ starts out as an ATS and then eventually becomes a national securities exchange. It's sort of like a maturation process. It would be such a, you'd be going from like, uh, you know, from kindergarten to like a PhD if all of a sudden you went from, virtual currency exchange to ATS and it was skipped ATS and went directly to national securities exchange. Uh, like they couldn't even regulate their own activities. How are they supposed to regulate other people's? So. Okay. So then one other thing about this distinction between national securities exchanges and alternative trading systems. Um, so I believe if you are a national securities exchange, you're exempt from this next thing I'm going to discuss, but as an alternative trading system, you would then also be subject to blue sky laws, which are state level regulations for securities offerings. And those have similar requirements around registration and disclosing the securities issue or details of their offering. Um, sometimes they even have to get approval from the state regulators. So does this mean that you're also at the moment dealing with state regulators for your listings? 
So the blue sky laws you're referring to are on the registration side, uh, essentially to be able to offer that security in that state for an initial issuance. Uh, on the broker-dealer side, I believe, and Rosario, you could tell me if I'm a little off, that there is a annual sort of, I guess, fee to do conduct business in that state. And basically, there's a process by which that broker-dealer is not licensed, but approved to conduct business in that state. That's a little bit different and just a small distinction there. Yeah, and I think I think those are uh, pretty simple check-the-box exercises. I, I actually don't remember all the all the details on it. And I'm not sure. I, I don't think you're. You're. I don't think you're going to get regulate. You, you, the whole point of being a national stock exchange, or or even you know a broker dealer, is you're regulated at the federal level, and uh, you don't have to you know deal with the state level. I think the issuers have to f- make certain filings around the blue blue sky laws in the states that they're selling in. Is I think what it's related to. Okay. Okay. But it doesn't. The the ATS does not get involved at, or they're not included in that. There's a state-by-state fee you have to pay to be doing business in those states, but it's not like a state-by-state registration of your ATS in that state. Okay. So um, obviously there were so many details to get into, but now I want to step back and do bigger picture, which, you know, we've kind of been discussing sort of throughout, but, um, you know, we've discussed this um, kind of uh, he said, she said that we've been hearing from regulators in the industry, the regulators saying, come in and register and the industry saying there's no real path for this. So I was curious, like now that you guys have, um, you know, your different um, approval from, I mean, they're slightly different approvals from the, from FINRA. I was curious, like what advice would you have for a Coinbase or a Kraken or like any of these other big crypto exchanges? If you were them, what would you do? It's interesting because in the industry for a long time, people say, well, we go speak to the SEC and we get a Wells notice, but they're not mentioning how they were conducting all this business activity that was improperly licensed and uh, not compliant with the federal securities laws. They're basically conflating two concepts. One is how do we move forward, right? How are we going to become compliant? Not how we clean up the non-compliant activities that previously occurred. There's really no way like there, maybe in theory, there's ways through no action letters and something and grandfathering, but you can't exercise those skeletons out of your closet. And I think that's one of the biggest issues when it comes to a lot of the legacy crypto financial service providers and the virtual currency exchanges is that there are a lot of skeletons there. And how then do you transition to an ecosystem where you're under strict enforcement and regulatory guidelines and reporting guidelines and have to, uh, uh, and it's a, it's a, it's a significant task. And I think that's why we see such intransigence from the virtual currency exchanges in, in being uh, aloof or obtuse to the writing on the wall that digital assets are securities. You know, they, they argue for a lack that there's a lack of regulatory clarity because they're literally best served by the lack of regulatory clarity. Yeah, I, my, my advice would be let's not forget that the U.S. Uh, is the biggest capital market in the world. This is the most important market in the world. I don't think you want to go offshore. I think that has all sorts of implications. It's the wrong approach. I think thumbing your nose at regulators is not the way to do this. I mean, this is, this is, this is, you know, it's not easy, but it's not hard. We did it, um, you know, and, and went through the, the process and, and got the right approvals to be able to, to, to do this business in the right way. And uh, I think that, you know, people just need to be way more cooperative with regulators and, 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 and really sort of just be committed to becoming compliant. I mean, I think, I think if we were at a point where the big centralized exchanges, instead of fighting, were saying, great, we're, we, we've bought a broker-dealer ATS license, we're ready to go, what do we do with all these illegally issued securities we've been trading? 
we'd get the answer to that question and we'd get some clarity around that, right? But there, but but nobody's doing it. Nobody's going through the process, and it's it's kind of um, it's it's disappointing. I think it I think it hurts the whole crypto industry. I would I would highly encourage everybody to just go through the process of getting compliant and let's do this the right way. This is the biggest market in the world. And also the idea that regulation kills innovation is just, it's, it's, it's nonsense. Let's think about it. Where is innovation in the space? Is innovation on the financial service provider side? Like that's really what's really taking the best advantages of distributed architectures, using them in interesting projects. No, it's actually on the project side is the token issuers. So regulating financial service providers does not kill innovation. Allowing unbridled, quote unquote, innovation from their standpoint led to FTX, led to the events of 2022 that basically let that that harmed retail investors that really, if you think about it, like they democratized a scam. They didn't democratize finance. They basically allowed the Internet to be taken advantage of under the guise of innovation to have the general public participate. And also in third world countries, not just in America, but a lot of just normal mom and pops participate in their nefarious ventures. And as a result, there has been a pendulum swing, which makes a lot of sense. So instead of basically spending your time and your effort fighting against your regulator, arguing in the court of public opinion, focus on innovating your systems such that they're they're compliant under the federal securities laws. And uh, again, Rosario is totally right. When you generate the overwhelming majority of your revenues from the United States, I don't think you're going to leave the United States. And how are you going to be competitive internationally with Binance, who doesn't, who has such a big market share that is just a different beast internationally? Uh, and, you know, that's a different question when it comes to compliance, but that's a totally different conversation. So I don't understand how, uh, and wait, one more point there. And also what we've seen is when all these entities start to go internationally, they, a lot of times they catch black eyes and they pull out. Uh, you know, it, we've seen it happen in India. We've seen it happen in Japan. We've seen it happen in different countries now. And it's much easier, in my opinion. It's a much more logical stance to figure out how to morph your business into one that's compliant under the securities laws of the United States and understand this new paradigm. So this was a pretty new topic for me. And since I'm not sure if I covered everything for my last question, I just want to ask you if there's anything I didn't ask you about that you think my audience should know on this topic. Hmm. I think it's just a general observation. One of the things that's sort of a really awkward phenomenon is I think that the general public is going to be much more knowledgeable when it comes to securities regulation than at any other point in history. <laughs> like, like, like I, there's an article I read the other day on one of the websites, and it's it's like you know a two three thousand world word article on what Wells notices mean. And, and that's and it was a pretty good article. So like, you know, this will educate people, and people will understand that like. Financial instruments are regulated, period. You need to include the investor protections required in order to make sure that the public can properly participate with those financial instruments and discussion. Yeah, I mean, and the only thing I, I, I agree with that, and it, it's not that not that the general public wants to know about what a Wells notice is, but um, I think I think um, you know it, I just want to be very clear that we're you know we're I'm a hundred percent bullish on the crypto space. On I think there is a place for commodity tokens. I think there is a place for utility tokens and things that might not be securities. But I I, I just think that we've you know we we've got to figure this out quickly, or it's going to harm a lot of people. You know, we've, people, people like Coinbase, the leaders in this space really need to sort of do the right thing, I, I think. And, and uh, you know, and I think that they want to do the right thing. Uh, maybe they're just taking, taking the, you know, going a different, the, down the wrong path. 
you know, I think if nothing else, at least we've shown that you, you can go get regulated to do something with digital assets and digital asset securities in the current regime. I mean, in the midst of literally what's going on with Wells notices and all of the sanctions and everything else that's going on, we, we, we were able to go and get these approvals and ATSs are, are those, those are, you know, SEC registered. I mean, this is them literally looking at this application and saying, yeah, we're approving these guys to do trading in digital asset securities. So I think the argument that you can't do that is just not, is just not valid. Let's, let's find a, let's, let's find a way to get compliant and like, you know, get back to work. Which means overall that there is a path forward for crypto in the United States. 100%. Okay. You guys, this has been such a fascinating episode. Um, where can people learn more about each of you and your work? Uh, you can go to Prometheum.com or check in our LinkedIn or Twitter. Yep. Same here. Basonic.digital. And uh, soon, soon we'll launch a site for the uh, brokerage side of the business. That's just the parent company with our technology. Perfect. Well, it's been a pleasure having you both on Unchained. Thanks, Laura. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Aaron and Rosario and their new platforms, check out the show notes for this episode. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Kevin Fuchs, Matt Pilchard, Zach Seward, Juan Aranovich, Sam Shreebram, Ginny Hogan, Jeff Benson, Leandro Camino, Pamela Jimdar, Shashank, and Margaret Correa. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.